Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and, of course, the greatest of emergency medicine. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a journal feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full journal feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, if you ever have any worries about money, we don't want money to be a barrier to better patient care. And so if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch and we'll help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by Rebecca DeFabio, Caitlin Nicholson, Seth Walsh-Blackmore, Julie Brown, Millie Cosset, and Clay Smith. Okay, let's skip over to the second article. Titled Efficacy of Prescribed Opioids for Acute Pain After Being Discharged from the Emergency Department, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, out of the journal Academic Emergency Medicine. Now, a little while ago, we covered an article that was broadly against opioids for low back pain, showing no real benefit at at least six weeks out compared to placebo and NSAID use in both groups. Interesting, but most emergency physicians I don't think make it a practice of prescribing as much as six weeks of opioids. That's too much. I'm certainly not doing it. Very short courses, though, let's say a week to our patients, you know, just to get them a little bit of sleep over the next couple of days while they get over this hump. Well, that's a different story. That's something I might consider. Here's a meta-analysis of six randomized controlled trials using opioids for short-term relief of MSK pain after discharge from the emergency department. All the studies were from the U.S. or Canada. Two were on ankle sprains, two were on low back pain, and two were on pediatric extremity fractures. The opioids used were codeine, hydrocodone, morphine, and oxycodone, with concomitant acetaminophen use in most cases. The comparison was with NSAIDs. Those used were Ketorolac, ibuprofen, and naproxen. Now, follow-up durations were mostly at one week, but one study looked at pain at just one day later. Five of the six studies showed there was no difference between opioids and NSAIDs, and only one study showed there was pain relief which was superior for opioids compared with placebo. So overall, opioids don't seem to be doing better than NSAIDs, but actually, if you look a little bit closer and exclude codeine, for the obvious reason that a significant proportion of the population can't metabolize it into active compounds, then you actually see some fair signal that opioids provide better pain relief. It's hard to speak to the exact magnitude of difference very well, though, since the studies were pretty heterogeneous, and the study reports the standardized mean difference which gives us a measure of difference, but it's hard to conceptualize into obvious numbers. Now, essentially, opioids were better than NSAIDs by about a third of the standard deviation, which is kind of how the standardized mean difference works. Keep in mind, though, that all studies showed higher rates of adverse events in the opioid groups, so this is also not a harmless thing to give your patients. All in all, the data is heterogeneous, and opioids are never harmless. Overall, my takeaway is that it's still probably best to minimize the number of opioid prescriptions you're giving and that most patients will be okay with NSAIDs. But in outlier patients with a lot of pain, perhaps a short course of opioids might benefit these patients for the first few days. Oh, but uh, you know, uh, don't give codeine. In Spoonful, other than codeine, short courses of opioids can be beneficial for short-term pain control after MSK injuries. Though you're making the trade-off for more adverse events, so it's likely not worth it in the majority of patients. And then we skip to the fifth and final article. Titled, Initial Lactate Clearance is Confounded Highly by Comorbidities and Poorly Predicts Subsequent Lactate Trajectories, out of the journal Chest. 
Now, depending on who you're talking to, lactate is pretty well the boogeyman. A high lactate can certainly raise the heart rates of many emergency physicians. Years ago now, the concept of goal-directed therapy was born, and that involved things like following reductions in lactate during a management of a sick patient to see how good of a job you were doing at you know, resuscitating that patient, and this was thought to have some prognostic value. The Surviving Sepsis campaign actually still recommends this approach, guiding resuscitation by decreases in serum lactate, though the evidence to support this is broadly lacking. These authors had a look at 4,800 patients with clinical suspicion of infection who had four days of antibiotics and multiple serum lactate levels measured. They were then able to examine the predictive value of lactate clearance, defined as a 10% drop in lactate levels within 2 to 12 hours, and correlating this with 90-day hospital mortality rates. And indeed, patients with better lactate clearance rates were less likely to die at 90 days, 16 versus 22%. But the problem is that these patients with better lactate clearance rates, well, they also had fewer comorbidities that you would think would influence lactate clearance. Meaning it looked more like lactate clearance was a better marker of the patient's baseline health before they got sick than anything else. And of course, healthier patients tend to have better outcomes. Just looking at cirrhosis, which we know will definitely affect your lactate clearance, well, it was associated with an 11% increase in average marginal effect in absolute mortality. Now, if you look at the farther out lactate, a 24-hour change in lactate levels, this had better predictive power, but it's not very useful for titrating initial resuscitation measures. So a high lactate is bad, but how quickly it goes down does not necessarily reflect your skills at resuscitation or how well that patient is going to do. In a spoonful, there seem to be too many confounders in the metabolism of lactate to use as a reliable marker of response to resuscitation. And that's it. That's all our articles from this week. What did we learn from the second article, if your patient really needs it, then a very short course of opioids, like less than a week, might bring them better pain relief than NSAIDs for MSK injuries, so long as you're not giving codeine. And then from the fifth and final article, initial lactate clearance was not on its own a very useful prognostic marker. Now, again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not part of the member's feed, and so you actually missed three articles from this past week. One was about NSAIDs and how they don't just cause bleeding, they could cause the opposite. One was a little breakdown of everything that you can do to prepare for intubations. And lastly was how to deal with personality disorders. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org. And remember that the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives. One spoonful at a time. Thank you.